there are, there are all of these hidden fault lines in the euro dollar system that depend upon dealers to actively police them and maintain spreads. But what we've seen repeatedly over the last 15 years is that there are times when dealers don't want to do that. And so liquidity dries up, money dries up, all this fungible concept of money just kind of disappears. And it leads to a lot of unpredictable consequences. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Edelstein. I'm joined as always by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner. Today, we are honored to be joined by a very special guest, the headmaster of Eurodollar University, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, how are you doing today? Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Obviously, I've been studying a bunch uh, for the Eurodollar University exams. Uh, <laughs> and so in this episode, we're going to take a crash course on the fascinating complexity of the Eurodollar system. Uh, and of course, we've got the world's foremost expert in Jeff. So I thought, let's dive right in. Jeff, what is a Eurodollar? Let's start there. <laughs> there is no euro dollars. <laughs> that's the thing. A euro dollar technically is a U.S. dollar that's on deposit somewhere else outside of the United States, and that's really where the euro dollar system began, with euro with actual U.S. dollars floating around Europe in the early post-war era. But very quickly, uh, banks decided that they were they were much. It was much more efficient, much easier, more profitable if they began to trade in US dollar liabilities that weren't actual physical currency. So essentially, a Euro dollar is a claim on a US dollar, whether it's inside or outside the United States. And over time, many decades, this bank-centered ledger money approach basically took over so that now we have this massive Euro dollar currency system that operates throughout the world where there isn't actually any US dollars in it. So it's a, it's a ledger money system, a virtual currency system, electronic, bank-centered, all that stuff. But it's all the thing is, it's all denominated in U.S. dollar. They're called U.S. dollars simply because there's that ancient connection to convertib convertibility to, into U.S. dollars. Right, right. And this, this idea of kind of trying to calculate money supply, I think that's a big thing. A lot of people say, well... You know, we got to calculate M1. That's the real money supply. Or there's M2, or there's the Austrian money supply. So obviously, it's very easy to calculate these different money supplies, and everyone agrees on what's the most important one. Um, but how much euro dollar credit is out there? Can it actually be quantified at all? No, it can't. I mean, you know, the BIS made a little bit of a noise just recently when they belatedly admitted, you know, there's all these currency swap derivatives that are out there. They figured it was about 80 trillion. It's probably a little bit more than that, um, that don't appear in any of these M statistics. But here's the thing. These currency swaps act as if transition transactional balances. So they, in actual real economy, they're every bit as good and useful as what's in M1. And this is something that the Federal Reserve and economists have struggled with for many, many decades. You see discussions at the FOMC going back to the 1970s where they say companies and banks around the world are using different monetary formats for transaction types of, of behavior that they had never used before. I think you know, something simple to us today, but back then was radical, was a repo transaction, a repo balance. Companies were using repo back in the 60s as transaction. That didn't show up in M1, didn't really show up in M2. 
Uh, M2 that got developed later didn't really incorporate all the repo that's, that's out there. Then there's these, these euro dollar balances and repo balances and derivative balances that exist outside the United States. So there's a lot of transaction type money that isn't even, I mean, it can't be captured in any of these M statistics. So quantifying how much euro dollars there are out there is probably impossible, especially when you get into the realm of, of derivatives and things like that. Depends where on you the can definition. only find them on the on, on footnotes of bank balance sheets. Depends on the definition of the dollar. One of my sardonic observations of all this, I think Ben was being sarcastic about everybody agrees on the right measure of the money supply. <laughs> Even the Austrians don't agree because there's TMS, there's AM, AMS, there's MZM. Um, they're all credit. What's the difference between a, a dollar and a 30-year treasury bond? Well, basically duration. Yep. And so what's the difference between um, a dollar, a T-bill of short maturity and a repo? Well, they're like different stripes. You know, it's, it's a zebra, but it's a horse, but it's a giraffe. You know, they're all four-legged mammals that eat plants. And, you know, the neck grow longer on this one and the zebras are... I guess impossible to domesticate. So the instinct is different, and you know, but they're very similar. And in a lot of cases, these animals can actually interbreed. I don't know about zebras and horses, but you know, donkeys and uh, and horses can interbreed, and you get mules. And you know, what's really the difference between these things? Well, they're different flavors of credit. And um, this one's used for transactions. This one may not be as commonly used for transactions, but can be in theory used for transactions if you have the right bank as a tri-party, uh, you know, counterparty, then you can use it in certain kinds of transactions. And it's like, where do you really draw the hard line? Um, you, know, yeah, I'm, you, I'm, you really can't. I'm, I'm obviously pulling for the gold standard where there's a hard line between a gold coin, um, of which I have one over here that I love to show off, versus a piece of paper that says, I will pay you a gold coin. There's a hard line between those two things. The difference oh, between various pieces of paper is, you know, it's not, and it's not just an academic issue, is it? Either Keith, there's, there's actual, there's, there's legalities involved here. There's functional problem. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. One of the reasons why the euro dollar system took off is because it is so damn fungible. You know, this right. piece, this can be money. This can be money, and it really depends upon the counterparties that are transacting. They get to agree, and so, in one sense, there's, there's an elegance to it. it uh, there's an elegance in the fact that it becomes very flexible to meet the needs of a growing world. So there's some positive attributes to it. But as you're, the, where your discussion is leading here is that, yeah, eventually there's a lot of inherent dangers. There's a lot of inherent uh, downside to that type of monetary system, as we saw in 2007 and 2008, which wasn't the only instance, but that was one of the sharpest instances where if you allow these ledger keepers to basically breed their own animals, the monsters that come out of that zoo are going to come back to bite. You end up with Frankensteins that nobody has any ability to monitor, let alone even pretend to control. I'm going to say even understand. Let exactly, alone exactly, yes. You read the mainstream theory on this stuff, and it's like, to me, it's, it's, it's medieval. It's yeah. like when you study Galileo, before Galileo, they thought if you throw a rock, the rock will fly straight until it runs out of force, and then it will go down. And, you know, for lack of observation, right, go out in a field, find a farm boy and say, boy, throw a rock. And then you see it's this arc. So there's no straight and down. So they, whatever they imagined they were doing when they used the word, I'm not even sure they used the word science, but what we would call science today, 
wasn't even beginning with observation and the mainstream folks, um, it's they're not beginning with observation. They're like, you know, I don't know if you ever took an art class in college, but you know, the average non-artist who takes one of those classes, you know, they put a human model in front of the room <clears throat> and they say, draw this person. The average person, you know, draws a circle for the face and a line for the neck and a rectangle for the Very body. Crude but and simplistic, yeah. You're not drawing what you see. You you might as well have your eyes closed. And if you're right. actually looking at it, now once you once you get that, and I, I was the same thing in that art class. Once you get that, like now you're trying to draw the line you see. It may not be very good or very well executed, but at least you're looking at reality and um you know, then you might actually make some progress that way if you're trying to look at the reality of it versus mainstream theory, or for that matter, modern monetary theory. They oh, geez, yeah, they I mean, they could the level of people. hubris and arrogance and ignorance and illiteracy about how the monetary system works is just off the chart. You're right; everybody just says things that everybody else says. We all just repeat these mantras and cliches because nobody has really looked at the system. It's much easier to think, well, it's. It's very simple. Money's easy. It's it's, it's a really simple thing. Um, and it maybe it used to be, and I don't think it ever really was, but it was certainly much simpler way back when. But then you introduce this, this, this monetary system that crosses boundaries, everything, I mean, geographic boundaries, definitional boundaries, everything so easy and simply, because it is so fungible, it just obliterates all of our previous definitions. You made an observation earlier, Keith, that I think is really important. In this modern monetary system, there is no difference between money and credit. Now, I know there should be. I mean, money is something else, but it, the way that the monetary system works, it's all credit-based, fungible uh, tools, instruments, whatever, whatever anybody comes up with that they can get somebody else to accept, that becomes money. And there's no way, I mean, the, the, the key feature of the gold standard is that there is a way for the saver to pull the money out. To give me my gold coin back, please. I'm, I don't like the risk. I don't like the interest rate or whatever. And by making everything credit, you've disenfranchised the saver. There's no put everything in the box, right? It's it's no there's no pressure relief valve anymore, and the system grows unbounded. Of course, there is a bound, but uh, there's no bound that the savers have any power set, and so the interest rate can fall pathologically for four decades. You know the quantity of credit. I mean, you mentioned eighty trillion, and I, I think people are, you know, so jaded or cynical to the idea of trillions or tens of trillions. I don't think anybody has any freaking idea. 80 trillion, and that's only one piece of the of the system. There's other pieces that are obviously unfunded yeah, liabilities. There's hundreds of trillions of interest rate swaps out there. So right. it's, and, you know what's what's really what's really mind-blowing about all this is you say nobody really has an idea. That includes the banks who operate the system. There's something called compression trading, and it's something that banks got interested in over the last decade or so as they've been trying to manage, manage their balance sheet uh, efficiency and capacity. What compression trading is, is using sophisticated uh, st statistical models and probably advanced AI, uh, AI models too, where they go into a bank's balance sheet and find two offsetting positions in derivatives and cancel them out. So you have banks that have hundreds of billions of positions, probably trillions of positions of opposing in the same damn bank, and they don't know they have them because banks don't. Banks are not what everybody thinks they are. When you think of a bank, you think of a warehouse with a vault and actual credit, actual physical money in it. That's what we're all taught in school, and it makes fractional reserve. It creates paper claims on vault money. Banks are these these massive 
complex systems of keeping track of who owes what to everybody else. And they've gotten so big and so complex that they don't even know what the hell they've got on their own books half the time, which is why they don't want to report to the government or to the public, because if they did, or assuming they even could, the public would be like, what the hell is this? This isn't a bank. This is something else entirely. So the monetary system, the banking system, we all need to catch up. As you're saying, you know, the analogy of Galileo and uh, Copernicus, we really do need a leap forward in monetary understanding because the way the public is, is led to think about money is, is, is very much, it is medieval, it's primitive. I was gonna say, to, to add to your point about they have these offsetting positions, so let's just cancel them. I, I think most of the, I, I assume from your, from your tone, you would agree with us that most of our listeners would agree. There's something not quite right about let's just cancel and pretend it isn't there. Um, I wrote an article probably a decade ago saying, why can't we just all net along <laughs> about this idea of that everything is just netted and therefore right. you know it's, it's basically the sleight of hand of the of the illusionist oh don't worry about that's just the notional value is you know the derivatives tower at that time was approaching a quadrillion dollars uh, i think it, it was shrunk obviously after 2008 and i don't know how much i don't follow it that closely but how much it's grown since then or shrunk or whatever but you know even if it's a hundred a mere hundred trillion that's such a, a stupefying amount of money to, to be involved in it, that um, first of all, nobody has a grasp of what $100 trillion actually means or actually is. To, to picture that in your mind is difficult. But then you have these so-called offsetting positions, but that all assumes that, first of all, there's no bid offer spread on all these instruments, which there is in the real world. So they're not exactly perfectly offset. And then number two, that assumes that spreads can't blow out. Yeah. That, that the problem is that well, while there's a crisis, the offer doesn't necessarily collapse, but the bid collapses or goes to zero. And then suddenly the, the thing that you're long that you might have to sell, there's no bid. The thing you're short to buy it back, well, the, the offer is still quite robust, but the bid is gone. And so they don't offset in times of crisis, which is precisely the time when you need that to rely on that offsetting. And so, you know, I write a lot about the spread in the gold market, you know, spot versus future. and <clears throat> Most of the time, they trade so closely together. If you plot a graph of gold futures and gold spot, you know, because the gold price is 1900 bucks, you wouldn't even see the difference between those two lines. But if you zoom in and just look at the spread, the spread moves up and down and it can invert and all kinds of things happen. And um, actually, it kind, of, it kind of leads me to a question I wanted to ask when you're talking about the euro dollar system and there isn't any actual, actual dollars in it immediately made me think, you know, whenever you have two things that are trading, at, you know, in normal times, quote unquote, trading at essentially par, like uh, I wrote about um, money in the, in the Cyprus banking system traded at par with money in the German banking system until one day, suddenly, catastrophically, it didn't. And a, a giant fissure opened up between the two. And if you had money in a bank in Berlin, it was still, you know, good at par. You had money in a bank in Cyprus. They said, you know, 600 euros a day is all you can get out. And uh, if you starve, well, you know, too bad. Is there a risk that there will be a fissure opening between uh, a euro dollar and a, and a U.S. banking system dollar? Is that is that a risk? Could that happen? No, I don't think. You know, it, it, yeah, it, it <laughs> a qualified yes. <laughs> Let's put it that way, because 
in some sense, that's kind of what happened in 2008. If you were to break the 2008 crisis down, it wasn't really about subprime mortgages. It was about all these fungible parts of the monetary system that used to operate, as you're, as you're alluding to here, Keith, they used to operate in what looked like a seamless whole. Everything, you had vif various different parts of money markets that everybody thought was a singular money market because it operated so efficiently. It operated with very narrow spreads and it did so because banks were willing to enter these markets on a moment's notice until suddenly they, they weren't, right? And the way in which these dealers work in these to integrate monetary markets all over the world is essentially on balance sheet capacity and balance sheet capacity really comes down to mathematical operations. And what dealers realized, as you were just pointing out, is that their mathematically uh, modeled risk parameters were always well too, way too optimistic. VAR is a, is a simple one. Mm -hmm. VAR probably models most, say, 99.9% .9 of outcomes. But it's that 0.1% that right. is so far out of, your, out of your range that when it actually does happen, and you think, well... 0.01%, that's not going to happen often. But when you're doing hundreds of millions of transactions, it's going to happen repeatedly. But when it does happen, it, it's not like it's a, it's, a minor, it's, it's, it's a jump between what you thought was a minor issue to all of a sudden, holy crap, we can't handle it. And you spread that out over a bunch of dealers and pretty, pretty, pretty soon what happens is you have these formerly seamless, seamlessly integrated monetary markets that were really separate markets became separate markets. And so, for example, in 2007, you saw LIBOR blow out, which is the euro dollar rate, the main euro dollar rate. At the same time, the federal funds rate dropped. And the federal funds rate dropped not because the Fed was printing money, it was because banks were taking money out of the uh, where they had them in their offshore subsidiaries and parking it with fewer and fewer counterparties in New York. So you had fragmentation across these monetary, what used to be, we, nobody knew they were boundaries, but they really were boundaries. And all of a sudden, once you see them, you can't unsee them. So over the 15 years since, a lot of these fragmentations and fissures that opened up in 2007, they're still there. And so we really could have a situation where they get worse again, and you have a breakdown. It doesn't necessarily mean between the euro dollar and domestic dollar, because it really isn't that, that much of a distinction, but it could be like we saw in September, where all of a sudden the UK pound and the gilt market don't work like they used to because the euro dollar system fragmented and cleaved off the UK for various reasons. And suddenly the UK finds itself in, in a world of hurt that nobody thought was possible. I mean, just a couple of months before then, the UK gilt market was one of the best in the world. Rates were ex exceptionally low. All of a sudden it, 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 uh, it, it gets hit with a euro dollar wave. And next thing, and next thing you know, it looks like the pound is going to crash and the gilt market's going to be non-operable. So there are all of these hidden fault lines in the euro dollar system that depend upon dealers to actively police them and maintain spreads. But what we've seen repeatedly over the last 15 years is that there are times when dealers don't want to do that. And so liquidity dries up, money dries up, all this fungible concept of money just kind of disappears and it leads to a lot of unpredictable consequences. Reminds me of um, a concept in uh, software development, and that is you build software in layers. Each layer is attempting to not only obscure the the details of, of the architecture beneath it, but just to present a nice uniform abstraction layer, which makes it so much easier to build the next layer on top of that. But the problem is in software, this happens over and over and over again, 
sometimes the details of what's hidden beneath the abstraction layer actually bleed through. And then yeah. when they do, you get either highly counterintuitive behaviors or you know very bizarre bugs, which obviously sometimes can be very severe. And it's simple things like, okay, you think you know, you're writing a piece of software that says, okay, read this input and write this output. And if the thing underneath it is actually a network connection, you know, you're just assuming that, you know, my computer can talk to your computer. I think you're on the East Coast somewhere. I'm obviously in, in Arizona. You know, it's what, 2,500 miles apart. Most of the time that can be done in 20 or 30 milliseconds. But occasionally, you know, you get, you get some sort of, you know, analogy to a, a, a monetary system, fund, you know, Euro dollar wave in the internet. And suddenly there's a five or 10 second delay between us. And now this layer that was assuming that it's just reading inputs as if they were local, you know, completely chokes. And then suddenly it crashes and it says connection lost, which actually would be the best case scenario or other count, you know, it gets back a bogus value because it can't wait anymore. And now it treats the bogus value as if it was real data that could cause corruption in databases. Who knows what could happen as a result of that. And um, the same thing here is, is you treat all these different, um, you know, things equivalently or fungibly. And then when, when it suddenly matters that they're not fungible, well, that, that non-fungibility suddenly impacts depending on who the counterparty is, you know, in different ways, probably all of them bad. Um, yeah, and I, and that's, that's, that's why the, the last 15 years have been so different from the first 15 years, because the banking system has, has realized the fault lines, realized that their math and modeling is probably unrealistic, not probably, it is. We all know it is. And so they have, why have derivatives fallen in gross notional value over the 15 years? Because banks don't trust their own models. They don't trust their own math. And that makes it even <laughs> more difficult because you know monetary exchange is all about trust. And if you don't trust the other person on the other side of the transaction in a fungible monetary system, it makes things a hell of a lot more difficult, right? Not because funny. under a very simple monetary system, we're exchanging a piece of gold Trust doesn't matter. All you got to trust is the guy can show up with a piece of gold. We're done. But in this type of ledger money system, it trust is everything, which is putting so much more important and strain on those, especially collateral, because now we have to collateralize everything because we don't trust these markets, these, these markets to operate in seamless fashion. And these errors, you're right. It is the software analogy is really a good one because these, these errors that are embedded way deep down in, in, in previous layers, they do have a way of, of, of seeping upward and they accumulate. And sometimes they accumulate very quickly. And as they do, the way that what's, you know, we need dealers to respond to that is to, to add more money to the system, more fungible money to the system. But what they've done recently is they'll see these errors prop up like in September of 2019 in repo and they pull out. So now we have these errors that become pro-cyclical. They can become March of 2020 is a perfect example. They become really bad, really fast, which creates even more mistrust over the system that everybody uses, which puts enormous strain on other parts of the system that were never designed to handle that load. I'm thinking specifically about collateral. We have a problem, and I know this is this blows a lot of people's mind. We don't have enough U.S. Treasuries in the world. <laughs> it's not. It's not an issue about government debt. It's an issue about these fungible securities that work in this particular way that we need them in order for this fungible monetary system to maintain working order. And unfortunately, and I hate this. Uh, people think I'm a shell for the government because I say Treasuries are not going to go down in value. It's not because of the government's not a reckless spender. It's because they have this 
apex need in the monetary system. And there's just not enough of these safe assets out there to service this need, this desire, this breakdown in trust to collateralize not just repo, but all these massive derivatives. There's collateral for that. There's collateral now for pretty much everything because of the lack of trust. Everybody knows the system doesn't really work like it is. And it, pre it creates these other layers of strain that keep, that keep popping up. I just, I just have to add one thing to that, which is, of course, exacerbating that pro-cyclicality are the uh, the regulators, the so-called yeah. macro prudential, yes. right? Where they're like, you know, they're they're like the um, was it General Maginot, uh, you know, leading up to World War II, so obsessed yeah. with fighting World War One, <laughs> right? That he thinks he's going to stop the Panzer Division going through the Alps by you know putting these trenches in. He's fighting the last war. And of course, the regulators that are um, making things more rigid and, you know, whispering in the bank's ears and by whispering in command at gunpoint, ultimately, like you have to get more collateral on this, you have to do this. And um, it's, it's completely arbitrary too. you know, these Basel three HQLA requirements, they just pick a number out of a hat and say, this is the amount you got to have on your balance sheet. This is what you got to do. And you're right. It's, we will not have another subprime mortgage crisis. That's what they're saying. It's like, we were never going to have another one anyway, because history doesn't work that way. What happened in 2008 would never happen again anyway. Right. Yeah, regulators have rewritten their banking rules based on a pre-2008 understanding, what their understanding was. So yeah, they're, they're looking backwards while we're, we're all looking ahead, trying to figure out what, where all these problems are. And it's, you know, they do make it worse. As, as balance sheet constrained as dealers have become just from their own realization that their models no longer work for them, here comes the regulators saying, we're going to make them even more constrained because now we're going to have to make you fill out paperwork, monitoring, and we're going to have to make, we're going to make, we're going to come into your balance sheet and define and slice off particular uh, specific parts of it just so that we can tell the public we're doing something. It doesn't actually, it doesn't actually help. It's all public relations to say, we fixed 2008. Don't worry about it. I remember um, uh, back in my previous company, which was a software company, we built this architecture to do you know, real-time voice communications with like, very large numbers of people, like 10,000 people. To do that, you had to put together a cluster of you know, computers, and then how do you, you know, load share across that? Anyways, it was a pretty complicated thing. We had um, three quarters of a million lines of code. It was, it was kind of a big deal. And I remember just thinking about the engineering meetings and the, you know, the challenges we had. Like if somebody walks in, in a 3D world, they walk from here to here and they cross the boundary of a server where the uh, tessellation, where you've tessellated the world. Now that person has to migrate and, and seamlessly switch over to another server on a 10 millisecond boundary. Otherwise you get audio dropout, which people hate. And I remember thinking, the, the problems are complicated. There's a lot of engineers in the room and each engineer is looking at a different part of the software. I remember thinking, imagine if you had a regulator in the room and you had some, you had some politicians and you had your competitors are lobbying to muck up your system. And then you had you know, politicians that are just seeing how they can play it for what it's worth. You have regulators that are the people that weren't good enough to become the architects and the engineers are now you know the regulators and you have this giant argument about how this thing is going to be architected is it any wonder you never end up with durable solutions that actually work at best you end up with patching something or symptom masking or you know i don't know what you know the analogy would be but you end up with all these very perverse things and the solution to one problem is causing another problem if you just say okay you have to treat that as um 
we need an 80% net stable funding ratio for this. Well, suddenly that's sucking capital out of whatever the marginal area is. And that could be the repo market. Who knows where that margin might be at any given time. And suddenly you're seeing a seam of fissures opening up over here. And then the regulators are jumping over there saying, well, now we're going to say banks have to do this. And then that causes something else. And the, you know they create this kludge of all these different, you know, all you want is a, is a floor with no cracks in it. But you end up piling the lumber at every which angle, and it just becomes like <laughs> that was, a that was fire kind of, you know what I was hoping was one of the lessons people might have learned from 2008 was that the monetary system got to be too complicated, and the answer to that was instead let's make it more complicated. You know, that's exactly that. You know, we should be moving toward a more simple solution to money because it had gotten way too complicated. I mean, the reason people hate Wall Street to begin with, most people do is because they're giving a privilege and most of that privilege is information asymmetry. And the more complicated the system gets, the more valuable that inf information asymmetry becomes. And it's a form of rent seeking. It's not a form of, it's not adding any productivity to the system. It's not like intermediation at all. It's just a complicated an overly complicated monetary system that became overly complicated because it is so damn fungible. How do you keep track of all these various parts? And then we, then as it breaks down, nobody stops and says, well, let's go back a step. Let's take a couple steps back and maybe simplify some of these things. Instead, you're right, Keith, the regulators come in and say, we don't know what the hell we're doing. Either. We, I mean, obviously we didn't know what was happening beforehand because there was a crisis that we didn't even know was even possible. And so we're gonna come in and just write a bunch of arbitrary rules, which just make everything even more complicated. So in a big picture sense, that big picture sense, we've moved in the wrong direction. We've moved away from where we should be going, which I know probably to you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, money should be simple. The rules of money should be something that every lay person immediately understands. And that's why most people look at the monetary system very simplistically because they've been told that's what it is, even though it isn't. So I would like, I think the, the best answer to most of our problems, these monetary breakdowns and frequent uh, issues, spasm, whatever you want to call them, I call them euro dollar squeezes, in one sense, a big picture sense, is let's simplify a lot of these things. And in doing so, hopefully we reduce the information asymmetry privilege for some of these big banks, and then we can spread out the benefits to the real economy instead of having them always accrue mainly to the financial sector more than anything else. I think that much the Austrians got right, the Cantillion effects where money creators privilege themselves before anybody else. Jeff, I, I want to I wanna jump in real quick because uh, first, money should be simple. We definitely agree with that at, at Monetary Metals. And I think Keith, kind of his whole brand, the whole ethos of, of why he created Monetary Metals and, and what he wanted to do about the monetary system. Obviously, we're all about that. But I, I know we have to go soon, which is incredible because I'm learning so much and, and we're going to have to have you back on to just explain all of this more to me. But I wanted to do a lightning round, not complex, not a thousand words, not a tome, just a very quick. Well, you're asking the wrong hear, guy. <laughs> right, I know, I know. Between you and Keith. Um, we're going to keep it short and sweet. I'm going to ask you both, um, and I'll, and I'll decide who gets to answer first, but it's going to be a lightning round and you just kind of give kind of your quick idea. Yes or no underrated overrated. Um, and so Jeff, I'll start with you gold in 2023. Are you bullish bearish or neutral with what you're seeing in the market landscape? If I only get one word and I've already used more than one word, <laughs> I'm going to say <laughs> bullish. Okay. Keith, I'm going to, same question, gold, bullish, bearish, or neutral. I think uh, I'm going to have to hold off until the outlook 2023 report and put the answer there. 
Sorry. I oh, had a, a feeling punch. he was going to say He's that. He's abstaining. <laughs> I know. I, I don't know if I'm going to allow that, but uh, he is my boss, so I, I don't really get a choice. All right, next one. U.S. future, the U.S. economy. Jeff, are we heading towards hyperinflation, like Weimar Journey? There's money printing everywhere. Chickens coming home to roost. Or are we going to stagnate to death like Japan, have a lost decade or so? What do you think? Probability-wise, it's much more probable the Japan uh, scenario. I mean, we've been living it for 15 years already. Uh, just briefly, we do everything the Japanese do. So <laughs> why would we expect different results? Keith, same question to you. U.S. future, hyperinflation, stagnate to death. Yeah, heat death of the economic universe. It's the cold, lonely, drowning in the dark, that choked off of oxygen, not the bright flash of a thermonuclear you know, 15 million degree explosion. All right, next one, Triffin's Dilemma. Uh, Jeff, I'm gonna give you about a minute to explain it. And then if you think it is overrated or underrated for understanding what is coming for our future. Triffin's Dilemma briefly was the, uh, the flaw in Bretton Woods where we had need for expanding monetary supply for globalization, which meant an international currency, but Bretton Woods linked the US gold reserve to that international currency, which was supposed to be the US dollar, the British pound. So simply put, there was not enough gold reserves in the US to back all of these dollars, which started to include this Euro dollar expansion. Uh, what most people get wrong is that the Euro dollar solved Triffin's dilemma long before 1971 and took over the roles of the reserve currency. And so in many ways, we're living in the shadow of Triffin's dilemma because the Euro dollar became that solution. And now we have another problem, which is sort of the Eurodollar dilemma, where we don't have enough Euro dollars to service global economic growth. So we have to we have to solve that one again. Keith, Triffin's dilemma, overrated or underrated for understanding what's going on? I think it's underrated just because I almost never see anybody even mention it. This idea that the domestic policy in the US, whatever you might think of what Jay Powell is doing, at least is directing his attention towards attempting to address a domestic issue and then you know squeezing or you know uh, precipitating a squeeze in the rest of the world as a, as the unintended consequence of it so i think Tri triffin's dilemma is still maybe in a modified form still very much alive and kicking and underappreciated as hell all righty next one dxy in the short to medium term jeff does the dxy continue to roll over or does it gain in strength I think it continues to roll over in the short run because of some alleviation and collateral issues, that kind of thing. Lower demand as the economy heads toward recession, there's less demand for dollars globally. But I think that turns around at some point, probably pretty soon, especially if we get something like a financial squeeze to go along with the recession. Keith, same question your way. The DXY short term continue to roll over or gain in strength? I think I basically agree with Jeff. I think in the short term, it continues to roll. Um, as risk assets are finding a bid, um, which means you know, selling dollars to get into other things. Um, longer term, there's no question that, um, so Jeff, a key part of my theory is that uh, all the other currencies are dollar derivatives, or you might say Euro dollar derivatives. So the idea of comparing is this dirty shirt, you know, the US dollar is the least dirty shirt. They're not actually on equal footing. All the other dirty shirts are actually derivatives of the one dirty shirt and um, could never compete to replace it. And in fact, as the system eventually goes off the rails, it will be all the other currencies that go off the rails first. Yep. The US dollar would go off the rails, yes, but last. So longer term, we're gonna see 
absolutely ridiculous heights on the, on the DXY until the DXY ceases to be quoted or ceases to be useful for anything. Um, obviously, if there was a, a collapse in the, in the euro or the, or the British pound were to be destroyed, you know, at some point you don't even quote the DXY anymore, right? Um, yeah, I, just to add, I think that's an, a hugely underappreciated part there is that there is not different currencies. Other currencies are simply the other side of the U.S. dollar. It's, it's absolutely the case in swaps markets and derivatives where you have these trillions of dollars that are traded every day. The U.S. dollar is on the other side of 96% of all those trades. So there isn't other currencies and the U.S. dollar. It's not like the U.S. dollar is the best of the bunch. It's, it's really all the same system in looking at them from different angles. So I agree with you, Keith, there. Yeah. That's Jeff, a good, we're, and a good data point. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have to have you back on to discuss the kind of dollar derivatives. And, and I'm actually holding, I have a peso here, which is a dollar derivative <laughs> from Argentina. Um, all right, two more for the lightning round. Most overrated Federal Reserve chairman. You have either Paul Volcker or Ben Vernanke. Who do you go okay. with, Jeff? <laughs> this one would be close, but I would say most overrated is Paul Volcker because I put most of our problems including Ben Bernanke from Paul Volcker. <clears throat> Keith, same question your way. Most overrated Fed chair, Paul Volcker or Ben Bernanke? I, I would say Volcker for the reason that, that Jeff said, but also just because everybody hates Bernanke. So it's hard for him to be overrated when he's, his rating is basically zero to begin with. I don't Whereas know, Volcker. Keith. He's got a Nobel Prize now, so somebody loves him. <laughs> yeah, but that's <laughs> that's the cabal sort of rewarding one of their own, but... Uh, yeah, Volker, I know. That was, Volker that was is, such a slap in the face. <laughs> Volker is, is revered as a hero who yeah. you know, fixed the world, and that is totally not true, not justified, not fair, not just. If there's justice in the world, somebody like that wouldn't. It's like the kids, Volker is a hero is gaslighting. It's pure gaslighting. Mm -hmm. All right, the myth of Paul Volker completely destroyed by you two. I'd, I'd love to hear that one. Okay. Final one, what is more likely, Jeff? Stephanie Kelton from MMT fame <laughs> will replace Janet Yellen as the Treasury Secretary or the Federal Reserve adds Bitcoin to their balance sheet. What's more likely? <laughs> Both of those are highly improbable, but the first one is less improbable than the second one. So I would say Stephanie Kelton becoming Treasury Secretary is probably more likely, though I don't think it's all that likely. All right, Keith, same question your way. Either Stephanie Kelton replaces Janet Yellen or the Fed add Bitcoin to their balance sheet. One is the propagation of a monetary myth based on misunderstandings, failure to observe, and lies. And the other is a cryptocurrency. So um, I, guess I, I guess I have to go with Jeff's answer that I think both of them are have a 0% probability, but if one of them had an even lower probability of the Fed buying Bitcoin, all right, Jeff, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. I've got one last question for you. What is a question that you think I, as the host of the Gold Exchange podcast, should ask all of the other guests who come onto the show? Oh, that, boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think it would have to do with, you know, thinking about the monetary system more deeply and not willing to just, uh, not just willing to take a lot of what we take for granted to continue to take it for granted. So really it's about, Will you think more deeply about the monetary system, about how the plumbing actually works, the international nature of it? As Keith said, you know, the dollar is really everything. It's not, it's not a national currency, it's an international currency. So, we, you know, thinking about how that impacts not just individual domestic 
economies and systems, but how that can impact everybody. That's great. And I'm, I'm going to have to ask everyone that question. Jeff, where can people connect with you, find more of your work and, and become a Euro dollar university student? Well, I, the website is eurodollar.university. I do a podcast or a YouTube show. You can find that at Eurodollar University on YouTube. I also write a column at Real Clear Markets. I'm on Twitter, everything else. So if you go, if you, if you search for Eurodollar University, chances are you're going to find me pretty easily. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And we're definitely going to have to have you back on as the Eurodollar system continues to implode. And I want to thank you again for coming on. I, hey, thank you very much for having me, Keith. It was great to meet you and see you here. And uh, I absolutely look forward to doing it again. Yeah, absolutely. We've got to do it. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions. And our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.